Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is Matthew Cox. Matthew was diagnosed with a learning disability in high school where he was told he would never attend college and he wouldn't amount to anything. However, Matthew is now an incredibly successful businessman. He's the co-founder of the Never Give Up Behavioural Services and the Never Give Up Foundation. But before we get a chance to speak with Matthew, it's the Leadership Hacker News. For any organisation to be successful, it must find a way to develop talent. It isn't always possible to hire great talent in leadership, particularly from outside the organisation. So being able to develop leaders within the organisation is a key success factor. It will help the company grow and meet future needs. I'm going to share with you four principles that really help drive leadership development and leadership potential for 2022. The first principle is taking ownership. This is about being fully responsible for your leadership team and their personal development in that journey. And it's different from being in charge. Taking ownership is simply about empowering people around you, but being fully responsible, knowing that it's actually a shared responsibility. Great leaders make it their job to keep pushing things forward. They don't sit back and wait for tasks to be given to them. They search for new ways to improve. That includes developing them and their teams, learning through mistakes and continually being brave enough to make them. When everyone takes ownership, people are willing to do what's needed without finding ways to skirt responsibility. By taking ownership, this also creates consistency. And consistency creates routines, habits and patterns that others can also learn from rather than just one-off activities. Principle two, use next level thinking. How do you know if you did something right? Most people look at the task, did you accomplish it or not? Did you do what you said you were gonna do or not? Well, for leadership, we need to shift our thinking. Each task is important and we consistently need to measure our productivity versus key performance. But next level leadership requires a shift in a perspective. Helping people move away from linear thinking is really important. Linear thinking follows quick, snap decisions without much analysis and are usually short term. Instead, we need to think systems thinking, see the bigger picture interconnection between the various parts of a system. In doing so, it gives us the ability to have much broader perspectives and allow better decision making. And if we think of systems thinking as the full business system, not the individual parts, it gives us the ability for much deeper, more meaningful decision making. Principle three, respect time, your time and others. There is an old adage of time management. And if anybody's ever worked with me, you'll know that it's a myth and I encourage you to think of it that way. You can't manage time, you can only manage you. The hack here is I want you to think about reframing time management to prioritization. And if you're able to look at tasks, 
and compare them in terms of their urgent and important status. What you need to tackle first, that creates space, providing you create the space for recovery and well-being in your plan. Create a model of the week that you want to see happen and feature into that model time for you and for others, but also encourage others to do the same because by respecting others' time, you'll be able to be more efficient. You also need to micromanage. And principle four, focus on progress, not perfection. Nobody is perfect. And chasing for perfection means we forego experimenting or testing things because we don't want to screw up. You may be familiar with the terminology trial and error. By definition, that means there will be error and that's okay. But doing so means continuous improvement. Create the space for people to feel psychologically safe so they can experiment. That means that they'll learn. It removes the need for criticism. The key learning here is that every time you win a step forward, it's a step of progress towards a goal, but not perfection. Of course, there are more than four principles that are going to keep us well for 2022 when we start thinking about our leadership development. And I'd encourage you just to focus on what's working for you. But take a step forward, not a step back. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. Let's dive into the show. Our special guest on today's show is Matthew Cox. He's a CEO and founder of Never Give Up Foundation. He's a coach, speaker, and the co-author of the book, The Courage to Think Differently. Matt's story is even more remarkable, as whilst he's an entrepreneur having sold multi-million dollar businesses in the past, he's also learning disabled. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. So right off the bat, Matt, when you hear the word learning disabled, what does that really mean? Well, it can go two different ways. Learning disabled is a learning disability or intellectual disability uh, versus the physical. So when somebody's learning disabled, they struggle either with some sort of element like dyslexia, illiteracy, or something that impairs them um, to not learn the way we call what's called normal society. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, been based on if you can't read or write, if you can't do something a certain way, um, you're a learning disabled, if that makes sense. It's a label that most folk aren't particularly comfortable with, but you seem to have grabbed hold of this and created it as part of your identity. I'm keen to just learn a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't always tough or easy. Growing up, it was trying to get, as you hear that saying, getting comfortable in your own skin. And so throughout my youth, uh, I struggled with it like anybody. I didn't know why I wasn't uh, able to keep up with all the other kids in the classroom. Now, if I was on the soccer field, that was another thing. I was pretty good at that. But when it came to the classroom, I, I hated tests. I, um, English was like a foreign language to me. Um, so it was tough that way. So it was always until I got into my 30s, I finally got comfortable with it. But growing up from an adolescent to the about then, it was always trying to hide things, was not comfortable. And then it just clicked one day. I just finally realized through some some personal work, having a coach and having mentors, having good people around me, I finally just realized it, it doesn't define who I am. And the definition of learning in art today is like reading and writings. It's it's not something that's been around forever. It's something we created as a society, and 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 we make uh, 
decisions on uh, scoring our kids, scoring our people around us, that if they do X, then they're intelligent. So it wasn't until in my 30s, Steve, that I finally just kind of got comfortable with it, with uh, a mentor that kind of guided me through it. And then from there on, it's just been, um, if it's you kind of miss out if you don't get to know me. So when I do presentations, I don't stress anymore if I spell wrong on the board. Yeah. I've kind of embraced it, which is freedom in its own self. So I'm not sure many listeners actually know this either. Actually, I'm dyslexic. And uh, I've also written a book, uh, albeit it was the best uh, couple of thousand dollars I'd ever spent hiring an editor (laughs) to rewrite my book. I'm not sure that she was anticipating the amount of work and rework that was going to be required. But I, too, had found that actually, you know, stood in front of a a flip chart having to write up people's notes. I was able to get away with it by just squiggling on the board and people just not even. So if I just got a little word blind, which often still happens, by the way, I I can get away with it as long as you were confident enough. Did you actually find any of that play out for you? Oh, all the time. I have I have code. But um, before I was so forward about it i i used to try to just say oh i'm just going to abbreviate it or put a code up here for you yeah and i kind of get around it that way until now when i do a presentation i i'm just i tell my story yeah and i say look if you're a spelling nazi in the audience <laughs> no, you're gonna have fun it's gonna drive you crazy today i wish you well exactly and uh <laughs> I like that. and so i just make humor of it yeah and usually when you're vulnerable and you make that humor people Uh, embrace it and I've never had an issue with it since then and often it is about that disclosure that makes it safe isn't it yeah finding this out and this this level of comfort in your late 30s is really quite interesting because up until this point you've gone through quite a lot of different twists and turns in your career and you've gone through some personal tragedies and you come out the other end and been a successful businessman I'd love for you to just share a little bit of the backstory yeah so you know through all that fun time growing up. I learned early on I was an entrepreneur. I'll start there. And I think it was after we lost my father when I was younger. Uh, I think I was 10 at that time. And I had uh, seven other siblings at the house. So my mom raised us all. So I started finding ways to make money uh, because after after that loss, we, we were struggling uh, financially and my mom did her best. And uh, I remember my first business was a yard care business. I was mowing lawns uh, for neighbors. And then I just kept building it and took it to the extreme. And uh, by buying trailers and buying buying a truck and buying more uh, equipment. And uh, so at 17, I, I realized the power of entrepreneuring. I was making 4000 US dollars a month as a 17-year-old still in school. And I was going, wait, there's something to this. And it wasn't until I started listening to Stephen Covey uh, kind of switching that mindset. And then that's when my business bug kind of just went from there. And then I, I started several other businesses after that and had a few failures in there, like any entrepreneur. Um, and then uh, when I was in my 20s, I was introduced to mental health. Um, what I mean by that is helping kids in foster care, helping kids at risk, um, cause I was one of those kids growing up where, when we lost the father, I struggled, I started hanging out with wrong crowds. And I talk about this in my book, uh, just the journey I went through, uh, cause it was easier to get, um, accepted to the wrong crowds with, when you're struggling with self-esteem as a, as a LD kid and, and, and growing up. So 
Um, in that 20s, I, I, I learned that I could influence kids on the soccer field. And then somebody introduced me to foster care. And that's when I started my journey down that whole road. And I've been in that field since. And I'm 44 now. So it's been, been a long journey. Yeah. But it's been really, really rewarding because I found that um, that was my gift. And I think in any situation, Steve, a lot of entrepreneurs, when they find their sweet spot, just like a basketball or a professional star or, or sports person, uh, they always told me when I would work with them, uh, coaching them and stuff, they'd say there's a sweet spot when you're playing your game. And I think as an entrepreneur, you have to find that. And in my life, I found it and it was helping people. That sweet spot often referred to as purpose. There you go, purpose. It's now played full around, doesn't it, for you? And the Never Give Up Foundation that you now run is focused entirely on giving people the opportunity to grow. Tell us a little bit about the work you do. Yeah, so now currently what happened is I've, from the foster care, I moved uh, in 2009, I moved to Vegas and I started a outpatient company which that means outpatient in the mental health world is people come in for therapy or medication management. And we serviced four to all the way up to 99 or hundred or on. Um, so there is no age gap from the limit. Me and my wife started that in 2012. Um, then in 2016, my brother approached me and says, Hey, let's start an inpatient and for adolescents. So we started that in 2016 we were the first one in Nevada. So we were the first ones to do this type of work or inpatient. Uh, it's called a psychiatric adolescent facility. And it's for residential where they stay nine months to a year within the facility where all services are under one uh, roof. And, and then they transition back into the community. Uh, currently, that facility has 144 beds from, and it serves adolescents from 8 to 17. And then we have Sober Living Company that we started right after that. And the Sober Living uh, serves uh, adults, uh, all ages, and they stay there while they do treatment. And we did something unique with that Sober Living. We actually don't charge rent for them. We pay the rent and then we provide services around that. So it's kind of a unique uh, model that we, we run there. Um, and so that's that's kind of been the journey for the <laughs> since 2000. Uh, 19, 2009 to now, uh, when I came into the state of Nevada, and then we're now expanding into other states. We're buying other facilities around the or the U.S., and it's been been a pretty crazy journey. But I, I've enjoyed every step. It's it's a uh, it's a very needed, especially after the pandemic. It's got very uh, very busy with with um, mental health. Indeed, and I guess globally now the whole issue is magnified because of the pandemic globally. Yes. And from your perspective, how have you seen the patients and associates you work with change because of that? Oh, wow. We've seen, I'll start with just the adolescence. I mean, the acuity level from when it was prior to the pandemic is a lot worse. When I say acuity, kids are trying to harm themselves uh, eight-year-olds are trying to drown themselves in pools. Um, just the cases I see or hear, um, it's it's got a lot worse. And then adults and colleagues, the anxiety and stress level um, has went off 
the charts, just the what ifs or the unknown. So in, in adults, um, people are just worried about the economy and what's going on. And neurologically, of course, we're built to look for certainty and pattern and yeah. comfort and routine. And the pandemic's throwing that up in the air for many people, right? Yeah, and I think it's that that sense of reality or that purpose, right? Mm. So like you said, that reality or that normal, mundane, everyday thing we do just got disrupted. And so in the world of psychology, it's that, hey, my story or my baseline. And that's where a lot of people, when I've coached a lot of my professionals or business owners, a lot of them are worried about what's going to happen to the economy. Am I going to have a business and I think half the time our session is in my high performers, I say, hey, you, you can't control that. What can you control? And you got to live in the, you got to live today, not tomorrow, not five days. And so a lot of people are doing too much living way ahead. And, and that's when it causes a lot of mental health issues when we're thinking too much or too far ahead. The, it's the traditional power of now, isn't it? Yes. You can only can control the moment you're in rather than the one that's gone and the one that's ahead of you. Right. But that takes courage to think differently, which is exactly what the book talks to, of course. So we're creating it in our outline. So the courage to, the, the courage to learn differently was designed for kiddos or parents that have kids with learning disabilities. And so when we went to uh, start writing in it, and I, I laughed at you, like you said earlier, my, my, my uh, co-author, uh, bless her hearts, uh, Erica Walking Stick. She's she's the co-author of uh, True Colors. Uh, she's she wrote a book on the basis of um, temperament theory. Her husband was the founder of True Colors, and it was founded in 1937. And it's a temperament theory using four colors to define your personality. Mm-hmm. It's based on Meyer Briggs, all those different ones. It's they're all kind of every one of them. Are, yeah. Similar to any of the Jungian pretty, personality types you might see, right? Pretty much. And it's pretty accurate. I've been using it for a long time. So what we did is we took it and we developed this book around that concept of temperament theory um, and uh, developed it to where the temperament theory helps us understand how these kiddos um, or parents needing to understand how the kids learn. So for me, I'm a high blue orange so blue is very emotional. Orange is a risk taker. And so knowing that as a learning disability, if you have a kid with an LD and you know their personality types, you know how to one, teach them or approach them. Well, and it works in as adults. And so we use this within our business. Um, and it's really good just around the book. So that's why I've, I started, I, I wrote this book because I wanted a tool and it's actually a workbook for teachers, special ed teachers within any school district. It doesn't matter if you're whatever, wherever you're at. It doesn't matter what part of the country or world you're in. This will apply to whatever it is with a kid with an LD or if you're a parent or a special ed teacher or a teacher. Because a lot of times, Steve, in the mainstream classroom, most special or most mainstream class teachers don't get a lot of training to deal with us. ADD kids or our, us dyslexic kids. That's very true. Very true. Because when we're younger, we're a little more frustrated because we're not seeing things. And so that's what the design. Now the book's all designed around my story of my life growing up with it. So you get a little bit of different struggles 
<clears throat> then me and Erica do what's called a brainstorming session. And we kind of do a dialogue back and forth. And she didn't know how much work it was going to be either, Steve, when she was helping me write it. <laughs> luckily, she's a great writer. So uh, she she did a lot of the ghost writing. And so it's been a great journey. And we're excited. It's going to hit the stores here soon on all online stores as well. What I particularly love about it, having had a sneak preview, is it is really super practical. Yes. And whether you're a kid or whether you're a parent or teacher, like you said, it just gives you a bit more visibility of the treatment strategies, the approaches you might want to take in order to get the best out of people. And that's what I particularly love about it. Yeah. And th and that's what I was shooting for. I wanted to make it simple, but have some really strong principles in there. Um, so it's an easy read but you can follow the storyline really easy. So what's the reason it does take courage to think differently? I, I think the courage to think differently or learn differently is, is it, it took me courage to rethink or learn different because I don't learn the same way as mainstream education teaches. And something you got to think is kids like us um, or adults like us, we, we don't, learn that way school is designed for a certain type of personality it's designed for the gold green kid and so for us orange blue kids or kids that struggle <clears throat> we have a tendency not to really form in school and so school is tough for us and so that's why we either really do well in sports or we do well in something that's more hands-on i i think that's why it takes courage because I, I just, when I was in school, I, I just wasn't never comfortable unless I was on the soccer field, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So I'm blessed with having four children all come with a completely different set of skills, behaviors, and attitudes. And where I see the courage is the courage and the conviction that if you're not as academic, then it's almost the courage to hold on, have that conviction that you will find your sweet spot. It will be there for you but it's holding on to it without getting stressed and caught up in the moment of not having the best grades and not having, you know, some of the other things that other kids may have. Yeah. And I learned that throughout my high school, but also my college career. Uh, Cause I flunked out of college about seven times. Um, when I first went to my basics here in the States, you know, that bachelor's degree or the associates, yeah. the associates was a nightmare. I mean, I couldn't get past math and uh, <laughs> I remember going to the math department and crying to the the head of the department uh, after I've failed so many times. I'm like, please don't fail me. <laughs> and uh, what I did do is I learned how to shop teachers. So I think what my disabilities taught me is, is to be creative and do, to be a problem solver. So in my business, any, all my executives call me when they need something solved in, in a matter of minutes that's my sweet spot. I've learned that from this, it, it's created a superpower. So I'm, I've embraced it. I'm grateful. I think it was God's gift of, of, of keeping me humble yeah, and also giving me the directions because I don't use logic. I, I go, okay, that's a bummer. We're there. What do we do next? So I immediately always go into it. So I remember that when I was trying to solve the math, when I, I immediately went in and started interviewing every teacher and uh, I finally found Mr. Bowler. Um, he was a lawyer. He only taught on summers. And the summers in, in the States are very short. Yeah. So it's only a few months versus a whole semester. 
And I says, I'm going to take your class and the only class I'm going to do. And I sat down with him and told him, and he, he helped me through and I got a C minus and I said, peace out. Thank you. So much. that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pass, right? <laughs> but I, I learned you had to shop. You had to with, we can either be victims of our circumstance or we can solve it and move on. So that's one of the lessons I learned in that. Emotional intelligence is a core foundation that you see in many entrepreneurs. And actually, I did the research for my book and looked at what the key themes were between entrepreneurs versus, you know, some very good, successful business people who were less entrepreneurial. And ironically, there are more entrepreneurs who have learning disabilities than don't. And I, I found that really quite a remarkable statistic, actually. Yeah, Sir uh, Branson, I can always I always forget his first name. Richard Branson. Uh, Richard. Yeah. Highly ADHD. Uh, Steve uh, Jobs. Jobs was, he was, yeah. He was kind of more autistic or somewhere up there. He was off the chart somewhere. And then uh, you have a Microsoft guy, um, Bill Gates. Yes. Yeah. He has something going on there. And and it, and it's, I think it, I think it engages certain types of parts of the brain where um I remember doing my going into my master's degree. I had to do some testing and um, to get accommodations for the the school because you know having a learning disability, you get you can get accommodations throughout your schooling. And um, the guy that was doing it, he's he was a good friend, but he was also a, a psychiatrist or psychologist. That he his previous career, he was he worked for the CIA, and so he used to go in and try to get people to go to the, our side. That's the kind of psychology he did. He was, he would profile the individuals. And so when he was doing my testing, um, he, he did the normal IQ test. He says, Matt, you're 109 as an IQ, you're normal. He says, but he went on and did some other testing. I don't know what it was called. Um, he says, but your IQ is around 160, 165. me. And That's it's really because high. of the effort you put in. And he says, most people that have high IQs don't, don't go past there because they don't put any more effort. It comes, it comes easy for them. Yeah. He says, you, you have to work at it. And, and I, and it was an interesting insight. I, I remember that conversation with him. He's a great man. He he's passed on since then, but it was, it was just really interesting because his career and where he'd been and all the trials and we talked for a while, but, um, but that's, I think that's why you see all these entrepreneurs, like we're talking about, uh, Steve, that's why they're so off the charts because they put more effort and, and they give it like Elon Musk. A lot of people think he's an odd duck, but he just has a lot going on. He's firing off. If you hear his, his, his memoirs, he talks about when he's a little kid, he just was having ideas from a little kid. Yeah. And, and that's just, I think they're gifts. And these individuals just finally kind of click in and use them. And thanks to the work that you and others like you, Matt, are doing, by the way, that are bringing this to the front of our consciousness, because there is no direct path to success. No, there isn't. It's about getting the right people to do the right things at the right time and, and recognizing that some people are just really good at school yes. and others are really good at life. And actually, you know, never the twain shall meet sometimes. No, and I, I have a lot of doctor friends. I have a lot of lawyer friends, I, and and they're good at it. And like even my wife is very good at school. She was a nurse, and she's very. But there's a balance there because she's good at what she's good at, 
and I'm good at what, and it's a good partnership, just like in partnerships, like my brother and I are business partners as well. And I think I shared with you that when we were talking prior is that we have a joke. I'm, I'm Walt Disney. He's Roy. Um, and he tells you, and, and, and I liked what you said, you know, business, a lot of entrepreneurs, if they're honest, um, you you fall into success. It's not something that just, it just one day you wake up and you're like, wow, we made it. <laughs> yeah. Cause you fumble and you make mistakes and there's a lot of messiness to get to where the end result is. Right. Absolutely. And the opposite is also true. Yeah. Academics tend to stay in academia yes, because that's what makes them good. That's what makes them successful. They've got the ability to learn, research, regurgitate, apply, relearn, regurgitate, and, and so on. Yeah. And you just don't see that in entrepreneurs because they're in the moment. They're attaching their energy to the emotions that are presented for them and the opportunities that come along for them. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the, the dichotomy between perhaps those, those two genres, right? Oh, it is. My brother's very academic. He's not, he has the gift of entrepreneuring, but I mean that, that he can sit down and read anything and understand it after he reads it. Um, I'm the guy that has, I'm the visionary that has 20 ideas and only three are good. Right. Yeah. Um, but I'm constantly looking at the trends of the market. I'm constantly looking at things that most people don't see. It's like the matrix, right? Um, <laughs> exactly, right. I yeah. see it and I'm like, Hey, this is what's going to happen. And, and then he's like, okay. Cause he's very laser focused and he, he, he has to move from one thing to another. I can kind of juggle five things at once. So it's good to have that visionary and integrator. Cause if you have that, if you have a visionary, in what you're doing and an integrator to help bring it down to the ground. I think that's where our success took off. Cause when we put that combination in, it, it was, it was game over. Yeah. Um, but before then, when you have too many visionaries, if, it, if the visionary is doing everything, it, it, it's a nightmare for the, the company uh, because the visionary is all over the place. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Cause we started, but we, we need the help. And that's what I found as, as an entrepreneur, you've got to put good people around you. Yeah. And it's having the emotional awareness to recognize that too. From my experience, having worked, coached and spent time with some superb entrepreneurs is that emotional trigger, if you like, is very acute yes. that, you know, they, they know their strengths, but they also very much know their weaknesses. Yeah. And it, and it takes yeah. them a little bit to figure that out after so many failures. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm not a CEO. I'll never be a CEO. I'm just not a CEO type. Uh, so I create positions within my organizations like visionary or strategic officer. Because um, the CEO needs to be a very uh, gold or a personality type where they get things organized and they love to t attend meetings um, I, I hate meetings, um, because I'm, I'm more high vision, high, bigger things, bigger ideas, bigger relationships. So I think when entrepreneurs really figure that, especially if you're the founder or visionary entrepreneur, uh, the founder of your company, you, you, when you finally figure out where you're good at, and like we're talking about, you get into that sweet spot, it helps everybody around yeah. you. You've also now taken your learnings of work and business and how you've learned uh -huh. and you coach others. Yes. And one of the key things you focus on is the application of helping people with their emotional growth. Mm -hmm. Now, for those folk that maybe aren't aware of what emotional growth is, it'd be great if you could just explain it and maybe give us some insight as to 
how you coach that. Yeah, so a lot of times I, I find in high performers or individuals that are um, performing at that high level or executives, there's a lot of emotionals. I, I mean, so many coaches out there and a lot of the coaches forget about that emotional growth. And I think having the mental health background and dealing with my own emotional health uh, as that visionary or entrepreneur, I really focus on that with them. The founders of the companies, the ones that get off the ground, because um, I can teach you all the systems in the world. But if you can't manage your emotion and your emotional stability, uh, you're, you're going to drive everybody crazy around you um, because we're odd ducks. I mean, if you think about all those guys that we talked about, like uh, Steve Jobs, all those, you know, they struggled in their personal lives because we think so high uh, level that a lot of times I drive my wife crazy. So I have to find my own person to go to that kind of can grasp my overload. And that's my business partner and brother. And he, he knows, he knows how to address it. So what I usually do is I start with your emotional stability as the higher performer. Then we, once we figure out where you're at, then we go down and start working on uh, traction and getting the system in place and then vision because uh, that emotional health, we have to have a people plan. Yeah. And the most important person is you because everything ripples down, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes bucket loads of sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And actually, it's one of those things that doesn't crop up in the classroom. No. You know, nobody teaches you this stuff, right? It's one of these things you either bump into, you learn, or you find out as you are learning from mistakes and challenges. There is definitely this bit that comes along with it, which is yeah. an innate radar to maybe spend more time focusing and being aware of people's emotions because you have to, but this is also something that you sometimes need another person to help you with. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now I encourage all leaders. Um, and, and this is why I tell them, you know, hire somebody like me to walk you through it or hire a therapist. If there's more emotional growth that you have to do, therapy is not a bad thing. And when I tell high performers this, they're like, what? is everybody can use a therapist or somebody they can go to to work on certain things in their life. Everybody has something to work on. <clears throat> and, and when you discover that, you know, I had to discover um, when I worked with uh, my individual person that I worked with, either it was a counselor or a coach, um, each of them would always teach me, you just got to slow down a little bit. Because um, being ADD, I kind of would go too fast for people yeah. or I, I, I would capitalize the conversation when I'd call an employee. Cause I'm, I see a division, I see something coming and And then by the time they're overwhelmed after a 30 minute conversation on the phone. Yeah. Um, Cause it, it's kind of like an emotional dump. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Steve? Mm. It's like a, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I see this coming. And as a high visionary, it, it was too much. And even my brother would say, Hey, you got to, got to break it down. So that's where that emotional growth as a leader is going to come. Yeah. And so when I teach uh, leaders, I say, Hey, you got so much going in your head when you call your manager or whoever's under you, you, you kind of throw up on them. And, <laughs> and so <laughs> pick one thing. And so we call them issues. So I says, pick one issue. So if you can get three issues in that week, you've accomplished more. So we, you know, one of the things I do as coach, I teach them how to run a more effective meetings. So when they come in there, they don't do the, the whole soup. They don't throw everything in the kitchen in that soup and start stirring. 
I says, only bring three or four issues and let's talk about them and round table them. And, and they, they find that it's a lot more effective. And then they just have this ongoing issue list that they just kind of work at, if that makes sense. I like it. Yeah. Really practical. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. Do you think that we're all broadly on the spectrum of some sort? Oh, I think everybody has something. Yeah. I, I think, um, I, I think everybody struggles with something. I call it that everybody does have a learning disability of some sort. Um, we just don't embrace it. Like you, it might be an emotional, like you might be quick to get anger. You might be uh, highly intelligent. So everybody to you is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> that is a disability because you have to, it's an impairment because it's not true. Not everybody around you is dumb. It's just, they don't, they don't think the way you think. Um, so I, I think it is, I think everybody needs to step back and, and kind of see what they struggle with and be aware of it because we're all human beings. We put our pants one leg at a time. And, uh, I think the best thing I ever heard from a, a personal friend is says, you know, a good friend or somebody that's going to lead you as a coach, uh, I'm going to tell you, you have a booger in your nose and your zipper down, you know, um, <laughs> And that's what's hard for a lot of high performers. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with them. Yeah. And sometimes I've, I've scared some away, but if you're wanting to grow, you don't, don't hire somebody that's not going to be truthful to you. And there is still stigma with accepting that you have an issue. Oh yeah. Or you have some needs that are different that need a different treatment strategy, right? Yeah. Even some of my high performers, I says, you need to go get, you need to go get therapy. I've had to tell them that I says, there's some traumas there that are causing you to be a bad leader. Um, and they're like, well, what do you mean? And then we had to walk through it and I had some that said, sure. And they did it and they've had very successful careers and some chose not to, and they've struggled. Um, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of them don't want to accept it. And I, here's what I just encourage any leader listening not everybody's broken. It's just, um, Brene Brown's one of my favorite authors. It's just that daring to lean into it. Uh, if you ever want to read some good books, go read her stuff. Cause she kind of addresses that society norm, uh, that everybody numbs out. Like most of my high performers that are numbing out, they're either using some sort of substance. They're staying up late. They're workaholics. And that's a form of numbing out. And so you have to mm. understand why that is. You have to have a good balance, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. So we're going to give our listeners an opportunity to find out how they can get a copy of the book and a bit more of your insights in a little while. But before we do that, we're going to just flip the lens a little bit. Yeah. And I'm going to hack into your leadership brain. And I want you to share with our listeners your top three leadership hacks, Matt. I'd say my top three leadership ha- hacks are, you know, have purpose, lead with purpose and understanding, but help others understand that purpose. Uh, number two is just let go. Once you hire somebody, let go, let them fail, help them understand their seat, be very clear what the, what the expectation is. And then number uh, three is just have fun. Enjoy the people you work with and love, but have passion in what you're doing. If you don't have passion, it's going to be tough. Every day is going to be tough because being an entrepreneur is tough. And the last thing I'd just say is have a coach because everybody needs a coach. Everybody needs somebody to guide them when they hit the ceiling. 
uh, yeah because you will hit the ceiling awesome uh, advice thank you Matt. yeah next part of the show we call it hack to attack so this is typically where something hasn't worked out it's maybe <laughs> been catastrophic even but as a result of that experience it's now serving you well in your life and work what would be your hack to attack i think as an entrepreneur or business owner i think um we we need when you're wearing all the hats and you need to start hiring and increasing your team or uh, your grow your team uh, I've hired some bad people and these are people I've known. So I've had one that I hired as a, as a head nurse and I'd known her for years and it was the worst hire that I ever did. Um, because you don't know people until you start working with them. You might know them in a community base. You might know them somewhere else. So from that experience, I learned um, it's okay to hire people, but hire slow and fire fast. Yeah. And so from that experience, I learned that. It's interesting dynamic, isn't it? When you only have a social view of somebody who can talk a great game, yes. seeing them apply it is often sometimes different. Yeah. The way you live your life, it, it does ripple into how you work. Yeah, it does. Last part of the show, we get to give you some time travel. You can bump into Matt at 21 and give him some advice and some words of wisdom. What would it be? Uh, if I bumped into myself at 21? Uh-huh. Oh, geez. I'd say never give up, and, and, and that's the theme of my life has been. I, I tell my 21-year self, I say, uh, listen to people around you that are good uh, mentors. Uh, but I would probably just tell him, take a break and enjoy things on the way as well. Good advice. And taking a break is part of that recovery system oh. that gives you the emotional capacity to go on and do great things, of course. Yes, it rejuvenates your battery. You need it no matter what phase you're in. I think a lot of us entrepreneurs, we think we need to uh, keep working all the time. And I tell you, don't do it. So I absolutely love the work you're doing, Matt. I think you are making a massive difference. I think the book is going to be a game changer for many people around the globe in helping them understand their approach to other people who are somewhat different to maybe what they think they are. And uh, and I'm really excited for you that you're on this journey. If our listeners wanted to get a copy of the book and find out a little bit more about the work that you do, where's the best place for us to send them? You can reach me on uh, LinkedIn. I, I'm actively on there. You can also email me at Matthew at mctraining.com or um, it's going to be available here soon in all the Amazons online book, Barnes and Noble, all the different online uh, ways to buy it. So it'll be coming out soon or go to the website, MatthewLelandCox.com. We'll put all of those links in the show notes, Matt. And also as and when the book arrives in the various different jurisdictions, we'll help you get it out to our audience and our, and our listeners. And uh, we wish you all the very, very best with it too. I just want to say thank you for being part of our community and coming on the Leadership Hacker podcast. No, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. I want to sign off by saying a thank you to you for joining us on the show too. We recognize without you, there is no show. So please continue to share subscribe and like and continue to get in touch with us with the great news stories that we share every week and so that we can continue to bring you great stories please make sure you give us a five-star review where you can and share this podcast with your friends your teams and your communities if you want to find us on social media you can find us on facebook and twitter at leadership hacker leadership hacker on youtube and on instagram the underscore leadership underscore hacker 
And if that wasn't enough, you can also find us on our website, leadership-hacker.com. Tune in to next episode to find out what great hacks and stories are coming your way. That's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been your Leadership Hacker.